So today we have a very, very special guest. I'm I'm like a kid on Christmas morning. One of the um one of the episodes in the history of Sacramento that I think was really brought it out of its childhood into its adulthood was start started in 1976 and went on through, well, you know, in Sacramento at least until 1979. And that was a person that we knew as the East Area Rapist. And I remember I was talking to an employee of mine about a year ago when the case was coming up. And um, I said, do you remember the East Area Rapist? Have you heard of it? She was like 30. She'd never heard of it. And I was like, oh, my God, I have to let people know how important this was. And that's why I have my guest today who I am honored to have here. And I don't say that as a lobbyist talking to a politician. I say that really as a person because this case has meant so much to me. And that is Anne-Marie Schubert, the district attorney of Sacramento. Thanks thanks for being here. Thank you. Just don't call me a politician anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so little little fun fact here. When I went to law school, I interned at the Solano County District Attorney's Office for a summer. And I interned in a department and... You were the deputy DA, one of the deputy DAs there. Much younger. Yeah, you, much younger you than were. I am today. <laughs> <laughs> you were much younger. Yes. Um, and you dressed differently, too. I think you had big shoulder pads and stuff. Oh, my God. That was way 90s. And yeah, I think way you 90s. actually had like a perm? Uh, curly. Yeah, okay. Um, so I was there for, I think I worked with you for a summer, and then I went my way, and you obviously went on to bigger and better things. Um, you went to law school at USF? Yes, I did. Yeah, and then you came. Where did you go? Where, where were you at before? I Solano? got hired. Let me first start by saying I, I went to law school for the wrong reasons. <laughs> um, I went to law school because I just wanted a job that paid a decent salary. And then along the way in law school, I interned for a judge in San Francisco. And then I interned for the San Francisco DA's office, and I fell in love with public safety. So I, um, when I graduated law school, I got a job in Contra Costa, and I was on a two-year contract in their DA's office there. Um, and then I went to Solano from there. And then from Solano, I came here in uh, 1996. So I've been here since then. Wow. Okay. And you became DA and I got elected in 2014 and started in January 2015. Yeah. Um, I remember that. Yeah. That was good. Jan well, Scully yeah. preceded you. She was, uh, yeah. she was there for a long time. DA. Yeah. She right. was the elected DA for 20 years. So. Oh, wow. Impressive. Very impressive. Um, well, again, I called you up because I wanted to do an episode on EDD and the fiasco that's going on there. Um, and you're like, F that let's do the, let's do the Golden I didn't use State those words. No, you didn't. Of course not. <laughs> you said lollipop that let's do that. Let's do the Golden State killer. And I was like, Oh my God, I, I would never have even thought to ask you. Honestly, I thought uh, I, I would, you know, you're much bigger than that. So thank you for being here. Um, I want to take us back for those people who are listening that aren't from Sacramento and even for those that are from Sacramento, but are probably under the age of 45 or 40, um, Sacramento was a very, very different place in very the mid-70s. It was very different. And it's hard, as I was telling Katie, who who was, who was worked with me, Katie, like, this was such a big deal. And one of the reasons it was such a big deal was because Sacramento was so different. Sacramento really was a very small town. Um, a lot of the areas that we that are in our 
mind space today when we think of Sacramento didn't exist. Because Rancho Cordova was where the man that we know as the Golden State Killer, who began as the East Area Rapist, I think first in Sacramento, began to um, began down his very dark journey in our lives. Right. So you grew up here. You grew up around Country I, Club Mall. I grew up right near Arden and Eastern. Okay. Right. So what was your, how did you feel about Sacramento? What's your impression of Sacramento during the mid-70s, late-70s? Uh, Cowtown. I would yeah. call it a cow town. I mean, I, you know, I come from a family of seven kids. My parents were, um, my dad was a local doctor. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. And um, we, w- we went to school down off of Arden Way, all of my siblings and I, and and we would ride our bikes. I mean, I still remember riding my bike to, I went to St. Ignatius and, you know, ride to Dairy Queen after school. And, you know, you felt the freedom that you could to to kind of do whatever you wanted to. And so Sacramento, in my opinion, I mean, Grant, I didn't even venture out much out of my neighborhood much. Um, I didn't even remember the, I mean, the zoo downtown in Land Park. But it was in my, my memory of Sacramento was similar to what you're saying. Agricultural, mm-hmm. um, cow town, small, basically age of innocence kind of community. It really, it really was. Um, and when people say you didn't lock your doors... They honestly didn't. I didn't. mean, they didn't. No. Um, but that changed. That changed. And it's kind of funny because we've talked before, and, you know, this area has been a crossroads for some of the worst um, perpetrators of murder in, in the state. Right. Um, it really has been. For right. whatever reason, I'm not sure why. Probably, um, I, I mean, some of it has to do with probably geography, I-5. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was explaining to you before we started that, you know, when we started doing the cold cases, we did a map of kind of the body dumps uh, of women that have been mostly women um, dumped, killed and dumped, typically sexually assaulted. And, you know, it's no coincidence that, you know, some of them were right along I-5. So, you know, it's mm-hmm. easy. You pick up somebody, you, you know, stranger kidnappings. Uh, many of those have now been solved, but back in the day, they had not been. Yeah. And I think for people who are thinking about I-5 now, I-5 then, and I hate to keep saying this. And don't like write in, okay, boomer, because <laughs> this is a literal, <laughs> I'm literally letting you know why it makes a difference. Because I-5 then was very different because once you passed that truck there, stop and I'm all not- the way until you got near like, you know, Del Paso Oak Park, there was nothing but housing. Fields. It was all tomato fields. Right. So also in this time, we had um, a proliferation and it's it's hard to believe using 2000, 2020 mines. But there was just a proliferation of rapes in the area. And I think I want to ask you a question about that. But um, we had like famous rapists, like the early bird rapist, uh, the pillowcase rapist. And then, you know, of course, we're going to come to one in a minute. Did you um, notice this when you began to look at cold cases and and some of the crime patterns that was rape treated differently then? Why did we see so many rape unsolved rape cases from the 70s and early 80s um i think there's probably a couple factors um yes the laws were very different back then i mean we've come a long way in terms of um being aggressive about rape prosecutions back in the day even when this case happened um rape was not even considered a violent crime and so it was not even a state prison crime so you could forcibly rape somebody and you may or may not go to prison. It wasn't mandatory. Um, but the other part about it is, you know, people got away with crimes because we didn't have the tools. We didn't have the forensic tools that exist now. I mean, back in those times, 
you know, we use things like ABO technology, meaning like, you know, what was somebody's blood type? So you might be, a, you know, B positive, but 30% of the population has that. So it didn't have the power to say that's the guy that's raping these women. So, um, yeah, whatever reason, the 70s, the late 70s, especially serial rapes, not just Sacramento, it happened in other places as well. Um, serial rape murders were not uncommon. I think that's changed significantly now. Unfortunately, we see things like spree killings, uh, those kinds of you know mass shootings. Mm -hmm. But in terms of a serial offender that's committing those rapes, yes, every so often we have serial rapes. Serial rape murders, it's much more rare today than I would mm -hmm. say, as opposed to, the, like I say, mass shootings or spree killings. So 1976, mm -hmm. Sacramento put a foot through the doorway. Right, right. On becoming a different city, what happened? What what were the beginnings of this? Well, the beginnings for Sacramento started in June of '76 with um, the first sexual assault that we know of um, in June of 1976, out in the what now is Rancho Cordova, um, and then from there a series of them started to be happen. I mean, and I I would say this even today, rapes. Stranger rapes are extremely rare. Somebody breaking into your home, holding you hostage for a series of, you know, hours or whatever, forcibly raping you, tying up people is extremely rare. I mean, in my whole career of doing all these violent crimes, I've only had a handful of these. And that's good, but it's also just tells you how rare it is. So, you know, what happens in Sacramento is that these start happening and then the sheriff's department starts investigating them because they're obviously very serious. And then more and more start to happen. And then you start, if you were to look at the, the list of them, it's like once every other week, once yes, every month, right. mm -hmm. sometimes twice a month. Um, and then it's like, and the MO is so distinctive that law enforcement figured out fairly quickly, oh my goodness, this is this appears to be the same person. What was that MO? Um, typically breaking into a home, um, coming with, um, pre-tied ligatures, sometimes shoelaces, um, tying, oftentimes targeted a home that had a husband and a wife or a male partner tying up the husband using what often was called makeshift alarms. So he would typically get a, a plates or teacups and he'd put the husband on his stomach and then he'd put the, the plates and the cups on his back, tie him up, put the plates and cups on his back. And then that way, um, when he went to rape the female, he could hear if the guy was moving. And so it, it tended to become a very common thing, Sm stealing small things, little tokens, trinkets, those kinds of things, um, oftentimes spending hours inside the home. I mean, the, the level of uh, sociopath here is just extraordinary. So hours in the home, um, eating their food, it's just the ultimate measure of control, I suppose, mm -hmm. of having over people. Um, so, and we now know that that was Joseph D'Angelo. Right. Um, now, Joseph D'Angelo from Bath, New York. Um, so you are a history buff. You study yeah, that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. So Joseph um, D'Angelo, who now is in prison, thank yes. God. Um, people talk about 2020, what a horrible year 2020 was, you know, and I get that. Right. But you know, one damn good thing was done in 2020. Right. And that is you put maybe the worst offender mm -hmm. in California history behind bars forever. So Joseph D'Angelo um, 
had met a woman at Sierra College, uh, Bonnie Cowling. Bonnie Cowling. Bonnie. Bonnie. Right, right. Um, and she was young, I think 18. And he wanted to take her away and get her. Get, they wanted to go to uh, what Tahoe mm-hmm. and get married. Right. And um, she said no. Right. And he put a gun to her face. Right. right. And said, I'm going to steal you and I'm going to take you with me. Right. Um, she had broken up with him, I think, right after that. Um, later on in his career, he was heard to repeat her name. Correct. Right. During crimes. Right. <laughs> I think if it wasn't her, it would have been anybody else. Right. I think he's just she's a, a sociopath he's just a bad guy. Right. right? right. Um, so he then, um, at that point, was he a police officer? He got hired in 1976 at the Auburn Police Department. For, oh, Sierra College, he was 19, graduated in 1970. Okay. So it was around the same time mm-hmm. that he was in college that he had been engaged to Bonnie. To Bonnie. Yeah. And then Bonnie told him to take a hike, and he later, actually, she found him looking at her window, right, right with a gun. He was not uncommon for him to do a lot of stalking. So um, then he went to Exeter, right? right? He got hired by the Exeter Police Department and became a full-fledged police officer. That's right. Um, and that's when another, the first chapter in this story begins, and you want to describe what yeah, that is? Yeah, he was, um, you know, it's interesting. Before the arrest, there was, I mean, there was a series that happened in, in Visalia called the Visalia Ransacker. And um, series of probably well over 120 burglaries, home burglaries, where the 120 over 120 um, in a very small area. I mean, Exeter is a you know, Visalia <laughs> right. area. Well, Visalia, I should say, is a small area. He's he's a cop in Exeter, um, but you know, 120 plus for burglaries that are you know sexually motivated, which is not uncommon for these serial types of offenders. You start with you know, it's almost like you're crafting your trade. You start with burglaries, you start stealing underwear, you start doing these things. So um, that culminated then with the murder of the professor, Snelling. Snelling. Yes. Um, and probably some stalking that occurred before that uh, of his daughter. And so um, that was kind of the culmination of his time in Exeter or Visalia area. He was dubbed the Visalia ransacker. I think even before this case was solved, you could put 10 people in a room and have a big debate on whether it was the same person or not. But obviously it was. Did he admit to it? He pled to that. He pled to that? Yes. Was there DNA tying him to that? No. no, He just pled to it. He pled to it. Uh, There was other MO evidence and um, other stuff. Yeah. And so so then he left Visalia. Man, I mean, just that alone. Geez, you know, 120 burglaries plus a murder. Just, you know, that alone. Okay. Well, I mean, imagine it's almost like in a way Visalia was was similar to Sacramento. It was a very small community, probably very innocent. And all of a sudden you get hit with this mass amount of crime in a very short period of time. And people are like, what the hell is happening here? Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, but then, you know, murder happens and then he takes off and he goes up to Auburn then. But the murder and the murder was one of, um, in his mind, defense, right? Because the father of Ms., the Professor Snelling, the ransacker was, um, or D'Angelo was taking the girl, I believe he was trying to drag her out of the house. Right. And the professor so, came right. to try and save her and he shot him. Correct. So uh, unlike something we'll get to later, this right. seemed more of reactive, right? He right. wasn't, this wasn't his deal at that point. Right. Um, so then he comes up and he gets hired by the Auburn police department and um, did he start that in 76 or started that in 1976? Yeah. The exact same time when Rancho Cordova enters its period of darkness with the East area rapist. Was there anything else you think that brought him out to Rancho? 
I don't know the answer to that. I mean, probably some, uh, perhaps some relatives that live near there or something like that. I mean, the thing about D'Angelo is, you know, there's, there's questions we'll never know. I mean, how did he pick who he picked? Why did he pick who he picked? You know, what, what's, I mean, those are million dollar questions. I'm not sure. Why did he go down to Southern California? How did he pick those victims? Um, a lot of, I mean, he's a, yes, he's a sociopath, but he's a, obviously a very highly intelligent human being because mm -hmm. he, I mean, the man had a full-time job. I mean, that's what's shocking to me. He's working as a cop and he's still doing these crimes. And it's like, did he ever sleep? <laughs> yeah. Makes you wonder. So, so you want to take us back to Rancho? So right. he has the first one in 76 right. and then it starts to escalate, right? Because I did mm -hmm. read that at one point it was like one rape every every yep. two every two weeks. Yep, pretty much. I it's mean, he's just was... uh, amazing to see the, the actual spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. So and then that goes on. I think there's upwards of 35 more rapes or so. Um, and then there's some that are scattered to neighboring counties. So down to Stanislaus County and Yolo County and. We see some in Alameda County. We even see something in Santa Clara County. And so he's all over the place. Um, but the primary focus and why I think this really devastated Sacramento was just the enormity of how many and the frequency. I mean, and then when you look at, I mean, back in the day, I mean, it's the thing that I love about cold cases, but also is hard is that, you know, if we had one today, it's 2021, but we have to explain why something happened in 1976. And so you go back and remember, there was no social media there. There's no internet. There's no cell phones. There's probably the old, 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 old computers. But the information that to get out for the public at the time, so you get, you get the Sacramento community that's becoming more and more anxious, stressed out, worried, about their kids and themselves. People are completely changing their behavior. If you, I mean, if we go over some of these stories of what mm -hmm. people did to protect themselves, it's incredible. I think that, yeah. you know, then, right around the time of the sentencing of D'Angelo, you know, I felt like we should let the community speak mm -hmm. as well. And it was, so we put out this kind of call for folks if they wanted to kind of tell us, how did this impact your lives? You know, how do you feel about this case? And we got this hundreds of responses. And so we made a, a decision to kind of put it into an online book. But if you were to, it, it's in a way it's riveting, um, but it's just heartbreaking of what people, how it changed their lives, not just at that moment. You know, we we did this book kind of like, and depending on the age of how, how old they were at the time, but, you know, young folks, teenagers, young adults, um, older people. And I mean, there was some of the stories of, of what people did. I mean, there was one woman who, I think it was a woman that wrote in, they slept on the roof of their home. Yeah. That's what I was going to bring up. Slept on the yes. roof of their home. That's right. Um, there was a woman that loaded her children up to into a car and they'd sleep outside their husband, her husband's employer. Cause he worked a night shift. Um, many stories of people arming mm -hmm. themselves with guns, obviously. And then Dogs. we had people that accidentally shot their spouses or their husbands. I mean, because of an accidental discharge or because they mm -hmm. thought somebody was coming in. The community, and I think this is something that 
it's foreign to people now, but the community actually had community meetings just on the East Area Rapist. And they would bring entire sections of there. And the Sheriff's Department, uh, Carol Daly, yes. most notably, would right. give them you know talks about, right. well, here's what to look for. Here's what we're doing. But all over Sacramento, this was happening. All over. I yeah. mean, I, I we have a lot of the footage from it. But I, I mean, I look at the footage. I think some of it might have been either Mira Loma High School. You know, they had to have these large facilities to house so many people coming in that were so upset. So it's either Mira Loma or maybe Rio. Um, like the gym. And, you know, first of all, they all dress nicer than they do now, but um, <laughs> it's interesting to look at it. But, you know, people are just outraged. I mean, this gym is filled to capacity with anxiety of people like, what are you doing to protect us? And it just gives you a flavor of the fear that went on in this community mm -hmm. during that time frame. Yeah. Yeah. If you watch those, um, if you Google it now and just pull up the East Area Rapist and community meetings and um, you'll, you'll, you'll see them and you'll just opening it up and you realize what a different community it was right. just by looking at it. And then right. you look at all of the people jammed into these auditoriums to find out about what's happening. Cause like you said, there was no social media. No. And if what's interesting is one of the things that, cause everybody wanted to help back then, right? Everybody mm -hmm. wanted to help find this man. And I think I remember either seeing somewhere, you know, back in the day, you had the CB radios, so the truckers oh, would use right. CB radios, yeah. and that's what they they had roving patrols. So they had volunteer patrols that were going out, you know, looking for the a, a future victim to make try to prevent a future victim. So they would have people that were volunteering all over the place, basically on patrol, like a neighborhood watch thing. Um, but truckers were using their CB radios to communicate with each other. And in fact, if you like try to follow the crimes of the Golden State Killer. It's like a pinata. You know, when for somebody first hits a pinata and you go, okay, butterscotch, uh, Milky Way, right? The next one you go, butterscotch, almond joy, Milky Way. To, right. But after, you know, like the fourth hit, you're like, oh, fuck it. <laughs> There's just so much candy falling out of this thing. I can't uh, even keep. And yeah. unfortunately, like he became like that. I At one point I was trying to keep track and it was almost impossible. The volume is so... It's staggering to the point that it's almost overloads your brain. It, that's it. It I mean, overloads your brain. I mean, I when when the sentencing happened in the summertime, mm -hmm. we spent a week. The, the court spent a week allowing victims the opportunity to speak, and I, you know, was there for the whole thing. And it became almost. It it just became so overwhelming to listen to what these women and men went through and what they suffered. I mean, then you think it's, they're coming back to something that happened 40 years ago. And, and they're still, Oh my God. It was just, um, I, I don't cry a lot, but I sure mm -hmm. cried a lot that week. Yeah. So. Um, so if we go back there, there, there is a story that, so his first, as I was saying, his first 15 rapes were single women. Right. Right. Um, and then I guess there was a, let me know if this is true or not. Okay. Or this is, um, if this has become like an embellished, an embellishment. So, and then the word is that there was a community meeting and right. someone stood up yes. and said, well, he, he won't, won't happen to me. Won't happen to my wife. Won't happen to my wife. Right. I won't let that happen to my right. wife. And right. this was in a community meeting. Right. They were the next victims. They were the next victims. And it wasn't long after that. I mean, it was kind of, and that, and so that got people to believe and wonder, was he there? Right. Um, be, uh, I mean, I don't house. He would have, known that or if it was reported in the paper um i mean i know long after you know the, the series ended and people were all over the internet trying to help 
solve this case here on Reddit and, you know, all the bloggers and the sleuthers. There was a lot of chatter about that. There was a lot of chatter about the guy in the puffy jacket uh, at these meetings. And they thought if you if you go on the Internet and, you, you know, people thought that's the guy, it's the guy in the puffy jacket. You know, he might have been the guy. And, and we have the photo of the guy in the puffy jacket. It's not D'Angelo, but it actually kind of looks like him in terms of the, you know, just white guy with yeah. dirty blonde hair. But um, but yeah, I mean, it was just. It was that I mean, it, there there was this taunting power that he had to some extent that you think I can't I'm not capable of doing these things it was it was that plus it was the fact that he would call victims afterwards Famous, uh, the famous uh, yeah, phone I call. I to kill you. I, uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, even it's just um, really overwhelming, but it was just sh shows you the level of his depravity, really. I believe the sheriff kept it quiet in the beginning, didn't he? Might have been. I mean. Yeah, but I, you yeah, don't think that affected the case at all? No, I don't think it affected the case. I don't <laughs> think that, I mean, I, you know, it's, I mean, I don't second guess how they handled it at the beginning. I think mm -hmm. that it, you know, I could see why they would keep it quiet because they don't want too much information out there that could jeopardize an investigation. I mean, mm -hmm. if they put too much information out, sometimes, I mean, even today's day, you put too much out, it could jeopardize things. So, okay. And That's you also don't want to scare the bejesus out of the community yeah. if, if they think it's an isolated incident or, you know, a, a small incident that they can control. Well, that's a good point. That's a point well taken. Um, but one of the reasons I think that this started to really put the this city and the county in 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 a grip, you know, grip them in fear was because of the horrific nature right. of of the crimes. Because so you we had all of these prolific rape, rapists at that time. Again, for the reasons I stated, um, was probably more, probably more reasons. Um, but you know, people are like, ah, well, you know, that's life. This is what this is the world we live in. Um, at it, at that time, uh, but the East Area rapist just captured our imagination in a bad way, right? In a bad way. In a bad way. And I think it, a lot of what I've looked back on it as is because of the way he did this. He took over homes. He um, as a stranger. At, yeah, as a stranger, he right. would watch their TV. Right. He would cook food in their kitchen while they were there listening to it, right? right. Um, he would uh, stay there, come back, right? Um, that was new. And, I mean, as far as I know, what, what are your thoughts on well, that? Well, it was new. Yes, new. But, you know, sometimes some of the serial rape cases that we see, and even still, are can involve what we call high-risk victims. So there might be something about the lifestyle of the person. Maybe it's someone engaged in human trafficking or something like that. Um, this was a broader sweeping where it's just somebody in their home sleeping. You know, these are people that are just doing their daily lives. I'm not saying that I any of it's okay with other right, rapes. Right. It's just, I mean, they're all horrific. It's just this permeated so much of society that um, you're supposed to be safe in your home. Mm -hmm. And people weren't. And that's why cha behaviors changed. And yeah, I remember we were living in Travers Air Force Base at the time. 
And uh, we lived on an Air Force base and we got dowels in our windows right. because of this. Right. Um, we'd never done that before, but we put the little things in our windows, which, by the way, he found he figured out a way to get around. Yeah. Um, so um, the Majuor family, the Majuor uh, husband and wife, right. he was a security policeman out at Mather. Right. And his wife and they were a young couple. I very young. I have jogged past the apartments um, and they were out walking their dog. Right. You want to walk us through what happened there? Walking their dog, just, you know, I think it was the end of the evening, and they encountered D'Angelo. Uh, he was probably going to be breaking into a home because he came with some pre-tied shoelaces. And they get into an altercation, and um, he chases, he shoots Brian, he chases Katie down, and he basically executes him. He executed her in a backyard, right? right? And right. then what happened to the dog? I don't honestly, I don't you know, see. you know what happened. <laughs> Speaking of dogs, man, that guy did not like dogs. He hated dogs. He really um, did. He, uh, he hated dogs because they interfered with his plan. I mean, that's the reality. He would, I mean, I think this came out at the time of the sentencing or at some point when he, you know, he's blew up a dog. I mean, he's a despicable person and yeah. he hated dogs because they interfered yeah. with his efforts. So, so the Majors, I think, were his first murders in Sacramento. Correct. Right? Yeah, first two, and, and only. last. Yeah. It's double. Right. And I think they probably saw something because he was uh, the the guy, I believe, was a MP out at Mather. Um, right. Maybe they saw, yeah, like you said, they saw him. Maybe. I mean, we'll never maybe. Know. I mean, uh, you know, the bottom line is he had to eliminate mm -hmm. him. Yeah. Ugh, that's, that's bad. It's terrible. It's wonderful people. And then, and then, so his crimes continue. Um, but then in 1979, something happens in Auburn. Um, he gets busted for um, shoplifting. Uh, I think he shoplifted maybe in Citrus Heights, but he gets caught shoplifting dog repellent and uh, a hammer. And so he gets fired. And that he didn't fight it, right? He was just like, I'm out. I think he had a, he might have had a, what we call a Skelly hearing, which is a hearing on. I think he might have had that where you challenge it, but um, I think he hated his chief of police because of all that. And even the chief of police at the time, it said that he was acting very strange. But, um, but yeah, he gets fired in 1979 in August. And that is when his spree in Sacramento stops or did it stop there? Um, it ended around then. And then that's when he goes down to starts going to Southern California. He gets convicted um, on the shoplifting in October of 79. And then the first uh, Southern California incident is, is in December. And so he moves down. So why? Well, and so this is the one of the biggest questions I have in this case. And one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about is why? And why how? Southern California? And how? Like how did? Because he, he had a full time job, right? He had a job, but then he um, he started working. I think as a mechanic. Mart? Yeah, for, as a mechanic. You know, it's. I think that you know. Interestingly, before the arrest, before he was even identified, the question always came up for law enforcement. If someone person of interest came up, it was always like, "Can you put him in Southern California? Can you put him in Southern California?" Because that was always the number one question. Because if he's not, if you can't tie him to Southern California, where are you going from here? Um, but. You know, back in the day that, like you mentioned, the databases were not as good as they are today. So you might not have known that he he was tied to Southern California. You couldn't necessarily tell from databases. But now going back in time, we can say I think his mother lived down there or something of that nature. But there were ties to Southern California. So there were ties. There were ties. Not a huge. I mean, not like I mean, we, you know, not huge amount like he lived down mm -hmm. there for a long period of time. Yeah, he did live down there for a period of time, but not like I mean, we still I still haven't figured out why do you go to Santa Barbara? You know, why did he go to Ventura? Why? I mean, why didn't he go to L.A.? I mean, the head scratcher for me is 
you got Los Angeles County, you know, millions of people. We haven't found a single murder case in Los Angeles County. Right. He went to and it's right there. It's right there in the, you know, next door to Orange County. And so I don't know the answer to that. Not sure we'll ever know. Can you walk us through what happened when he became the original Night Stalker? Um, this is when he went to Southern California. And because right. I think his MO changed too. Well, it became, I mean, it's his MO changed in the sense that he became more and more violent. I right. mean, he started not just raping people, but killing people. So, I mean, he his first known case that um, we believe that happened in Southern California was in October of 79. Um, that was in Santa Barbara County. And then in December of San in 79 was the double homicide of Dr. Offerman and his girlfriend, who was, a, I think, a psychologist, Deborah Manning. Um, they're found shot to death in Santa Barbara. Um, findings are found. They've been bound. Um, obviously, a sexual assault. And um, he liked to take bicycles a lot of times. Right. So that's, I mean, when you look at the timelines, the frequency becomes like, oh, my God. I mean, he's, so this double happens December 30th of 1979 and then the next double is march 13th of 1980 that's the smiths in ventura county so that's only a couple months i mean that's extraordinary i mean just and then you look at the the level of the violence that is continues yeah. that the, the charlene and lyman smith are just um horribly brutally killed um obviously is that with logs um, yes, a yeah. log from a wood pile is, is mm -hmm. taken and they bludgeon, he bludgeons mm -hmm. them to death. And so that's March. Then you take a couple months off, I guess. And then a few months later in August is the murder of Keith Harrington and his wife, Patrice. Keith is in med school. Patrice is a pediatric. Laguna de Gale. They are in Orange County. So probably, yeah. yes, yeah. they lived in a nice ranch style mm -hmm. home. Um, like I said, they're just, you know, how we pick them. I don't know. Maybe just. He seemed to pick people that, you know, um, were good, decent people that maybe it was just his payback for, I don't know. I don't know what his thought process was. But um, again, evidence of bindings, sexually assaulted, um, bound. Um, he starts taking the murder weapons from the scene. So he obviously gets smarter. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's August. You know, the thing to me that's fascinating, this is kind of a side story that I, I always say that good things come out of bad things. Um, this case, you know, the, the, the Harrington's case changed the way that we handle DNA in the state of California. And that's because in, um, so this murder happens at the Harrington's in August of 1980. Keith's brothers, Ron and Bruce Harrington, who are devastated by this murder, um, they fund an initiative, a ballot initiative in 2004 to completely mm -hmm. change how we collect, how, how we can collect more DNA. So, so another little fun fact, that was actually me. So I was the minority consultant for public safety. All right. Um, in, uh, in the early 2000s. Not the Burton side, I assume. No, minority. <laughs> um, and so I was sitting up there and there was a DNA bill that came up, um, that was sponsored by somebody, the guy that did, um, was it Ten Twenty Life? Or, oh, it was or, probably Reynolds. Um, no, I'm, I'm sorry, maybe, but it was the um, I mean the Paul the elected that did oh. that. He was in a wheelchair. I forget his name. Brad, um, Bradbury. No, I don't know. No, that's okay. And so he had a he had a DNA bill, and Mr. Harrington and I did my analysis on the bill, and I said, absolutely, we have to do this. This right. is crazy. It's like right. a fingerprint, right? So Bruce Harrington came up. He was the witness, and Bruce Harrington gave this 
touching speech. Powerful too, because he's a powerful man. Um, in ter- I mean, a powerful man. Not, and so he he gave this really touching speech, so eloquent. And John Burton shot him down and yeah. made fun of him. Well, Mr. Harrington had just given a speech about the brutal death of his brother and his wife. And John Burton, God bless him, um, but John Burton and John Vasconcellos just shot him down, said it was crazy, and they would not let the bill come up for a vote. So, so I was like, this is crazy. So right after that, I went into the private sector. And I had a, I knew a guy at the time named Rob Stutzman. And said, hey, Rob, can you? You're going to do a poll. If I pay you something, can you run a poll? Or I said, how about if the numbers come back right, I can tell the guy to hire you to do the thing. Right. And he's like, okay. So he did the poll on me. He did the poll. And it was on what the bill was about. And of course, it was like 80% right. approval. Right. So I flew down to Orange County and met with Bruce at, at a pancake house. <laughs> and I took the polling with me. And I say, hey, Bruce, look. Fuck the legislature. If you right. can get the funding for this, you could get this passed. Look at these numbers. These right. numbers are amazing. You don't need the legislature. Do this. And he did it. Yeah. Um, and he went ahead and moved forward with it. Um, interesting story with Steve Cooney, by the way. Cooley. Uh, Cooley. Is that who the no, the LADA? Cooley. Cooley. Right. Uh, yeah. Interesting. He came in and tried to grab all the glory. But um, but Bruce went through with it and it passed. Right. And um Prop 69. Right. And um Pretty proud of that. That guy should be very proud. He deserves it. Changed the. It did. It. I mean, the the amazing part about it was, first of all, he funded it pretty much himself for the purpose of solving his brother's. That's right. It didn't solve his brother's murder, but the numbers. I mean, I used to teach on this all the time. So before Prop sixty nine, the number of crimes that had been solved by the DNA data bank had been about twelve hundred. You know, it's twelve hundred. That's a good number. But since the time of the passage of in two thousand four, Prop sixty nine, I think they're up to eighty thousand. It's extraordinary. It's truly extraordinary. I mean, and that's really because, you know, a lot of good public policy comes out of horrible tragedies and the fact that victims come forward and they self-initiate change to policy. And so that, I mean, as sad as that murder is, Mm -hmm. it brought around so much answers to other crime victims and their families. Really did. And and he would, you know, and he, he would repeat that all the time. He would say, look, I just want to find the murder of my of my of my brother. Right. I know he's out there and if we can just get these tested. Right. Um so that was the um August of 1980 and then you've get you know again 4 or 5 months later in February of 1981 still in Orange County uh, a woman named Manuela Witoon who's home by herself because her husband is in the hospital. Yep. She gets raped and murdered. Um similar ligatures um being tied up. They don't find the murder weapon, they don't find the ligature. So D'Angelo's gotten smarter I guess in a way. Maybe he felt like physical evidence was going to be left behind. And he's working his way down the coast, right? And he keep going like he's, he started off up in Goleta, Santa Barbara. Right. Well, then he goes, yes. And then he goes back to Santa Barbara. So oh, he does okay. the Wittoon and then he goes back to Santa Barbara. And oh, he does the okay. horrific one of um, Debbie Domingo. I mean, Sherry Domingo and uh, Greg Sanchez. And that was kind of his last before an outlier, right? Um, that was that? the last known one. There's a five-year gap. Yeah, then there's a five-year uh, gap. Mm-hmm. Which was always kind of the, the the head scratcher, I should suppose, for people that spent a lot of time on this. Is um, I used to, well, I still do. I mean, it, before the case was solved, you have this five-year gap. So 
uh, July of 81 is when uh, Sherry Domingo and Greg Sanchez are murdered. And then there's a gap until May of 86 with right. Janelle, uh, Michelle, uh, Janelle Cruz. And so the question for investigators all along was, well, what, excuse me, what the hell, what happened in these five years? Where was he? Was he? And so, you know, our office and many other law enforcement worked on this diligently for years. Right. I mean, every, I used to joke, every list known to man was kind of created, you know, what, you know, a list of people that were in prison for those five years. How about paroles to Santa Barbara? You know, my, uh, some folks in my office, they had this thing called the telephone project where, um, which was really quite brilliant was, was there a common connection? Did the guy live in every one of these zip codes? And so one of our homicide guys who was instrumental in the genealogy part, his name's Kirk Campbell. Kirk went and got every phone. But remember, you know, we don't need phone books and we don't need hard copy phone books now. But back in the day, your, our parents had phone books, right? right? You go open the book and look up for, you know, Mary Smith and there's Mary Smith and it gives you the address and the phone number. And so what Kirk did from my office is he went, got every phone book, from every zip code for every crime that was committed by this person. So then he takes a, that those phone books, he gives them to somebody at SAC PD and writes a program, a computer program, to digitize them all. And then to be able to say, okay, is there, and then- Commonalities. Is there commonality? Is there any name on that list? I mean, that was just oh one example God. of had the link. We had DMV lifts. We had lists from Sac State. We had lists from- you know, uh, I went or my went before the case was solved. I was obsessed with thinking it was somebody from one of the local high schools. I felt strongly that the guy, if you believe in geographic profiling, which is, mm -hmm. you know, they get they get better. They start small in the neighborhoods and then they go out and out and out and they feel more, you know, they have more experience. So we started a phone book project. This is 15 years ago where we went around and collected all the not phone books, the yearbooks. We collected yearbooks from Jesuit and Rio and Miraloma and. You know, any any one of the ones out by Rancho. And we started looking at all those yearbooks to see did and we we data dumped all the yearbooks into Excel spreadsheets. And then we oh looked to see, okay, can we then run histories on any did anyone end up in Southern California? It was a needle in a haystack. <laughs> That's what it was. People were looking for needle. I can't even tell you. I had my assistant, Joni, who was uh, really good at Excel and trying to just find anything that was a commonality of lists, you know, and that's where you felt like if you can use, I mean, I remember watching Criminal Minds, the girl with the pink hair who could just put all this information in and, and check all these lists and all of a sudden, poof, here comes a name. Uh, it never really quite worked out that way. <laughs> it doesn't but, work out like that. <laughs> but it, you know, it was extraordinary work by some of these incredible investigators of what they did to try to solve. I can't this. believe that. That's amazing that they would it's, do that. It's a, it tells you yeah. how passionate they are. So the Sanchez, uh, is it Dominga? Cherry uh, Domingo and Greg Sanchez, yeah. right. So that's the one that's a little different than the others. And that's when I think he might have got the, I just might be too old for this shit message. I think he had a, yeah. I think there was a, the evidence of a clear struggle. Yeah. And right. I, from what I've read, Sanchez was no little guy. He was right. like 6'3". Strong. And yeah. And right. unfortunately, uh, D'Angelo had a gun. Right. And shot him, I think, in the jaw, went out his head. Um but he was attacked. I mean, they there was evidence of a struggle that they fought. And I think they, from what I've read, and you tell me, but people said that might have made him think, okay, maybe this is getting too close. Maybe I'm losing it a little bit. Do you I find think, that? I think the investigators that spent, a, I mean, there's a number of them that worked years on this, you know, Paul Holes, Larry Poole, uh, 
um, Ken Clark from our local sheriff's department, they worked on this. And I think if you really were to talk about them, what do you think about it? I mean, I know Paul will tell you he thinks that it was a really big struggle and that may have scared the, mm-hmm. you know, the crap out of D'Angelo to the point. Maybe that's what caused him to stop for five years. I don't know. There's a lot of theories. I mean, timing of having children and things like that may have also played a factor. And then we have that final out of nowhere, you know, case in 1986 of Miss Cruz. Right. Um, very unfortunate. I mean, that was a really, that was a horrible one too. I mean, they're all horrible. I mean, yeah, I mean, at the, I mean, I, I say there's a lot of unanswered questions. People say, well, do you think you've, you have them all? Do you know all of these murders? That was one of my questions for you. <laughs> I don't know if we'll ever know. I mean, I think we know what we know. Mm-hmm. And I think law enforcement in the state has come very far of getting their cases, the cold cases that have DNA. I mean, if you have um, clear evidence of a sexual assault, um, like a rape murder, I think law enforcement has come very far, especially if it's a stranger rape murder. Um, I mean, I remember before the case was solved, I, I kept wondering what, why is there nothing in LA County? And I went around to the homicide lieutenants of those agencies, LASO, LAPD, and I asked them, do you have any cases where an intruder was shot? Because I thought, well, maybe the guy got shot. How mm-hmm. would we know? Mm-hmm. There's no community, there's not, there's no database to say, okay, well, this guy got shot. He was an intruder in a home and the homeowner killed him. That's what I started wondering. Well, maybe somebody shot him. And we just, he's been in the morgue for, mm-hmm. you know, 35 years. Um, LA County didn't have anything. Um, so that's still, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I mm-hmm. I know what we know. Yeah. And we know we, we've we got the guy on 13 murders and, mm-hmm. you know, there's like 87 victims on this case. I think. Is it is it the fact that the Golden State Killer's acts were so vast that our minds just don't want to comprehend how horrible this man was? I think it's, you know, it's like you talking to your employee, Katie. It's if you didn't live through it, it's hard to explain to people. I mean, you can read it all and just be like, oh, my God. But when you live through it, I mean, mm-hmm. for me, this is why, you know, I was passionate about it, not just as a professional, but as a person, because I, I try to explain. It's like living through an earthquake, trying to describe what it's like to live through an earthquake. But the earthquake lasted a couple years, mm-hmm. yeah. like all the time. And so I think, you know, there's, you know, I don't think we've ever seen anything like this in California. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the, the the breadth of it, the magnitude. Yes, yeah. you've got serial killers. You've got BTK and Bundy mm-hmm. and all those people. Um, but the volume of the victims volume. is enormous. Mm-hmm. And and I think now that we know who he is, this, this former police officer, it, it just, just adds this despicable mm-hmm. element to it that you know someone that was elect was hired to protect the community right. destroyed it and probably used his job to perfect probably did you know i mean he acts. learned tricks of the trade i mean he, you he know, was in the burglary he the division in, yeah i mean right? it was a really really small department but, <laughs> yeah. but yeah but sure yeah i mean i think he learned um ways to avoid detection i mean right after the arrest of d'angelo i got a funny little text from a local defense guy um and he says, and he sent me a Wikipedia picture that just said the year that forensic DNA was identified or found in 1986. Maybe this is why he stopped. I read that. I read that. Somebody I mean, said that he was bright enough to see that, oh, DNA's yeah, I mean, out there. He never, I mean, no, he never had the foresight to think that genealogy would catch him. But, uh, you know, mm-hmm. who's to say he didn't change his MO? I don't mm-hmm. know. I mean. So before we get on to like how you came into this case and the the very rapid way in which this was all brought together, well, rapid from the outside eyes, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of stuff going on for a long time. Um, 
right in the middle of of um of the D'Angelo of the East Area Rapist, right? Oh, here you go. Of his, <laughs> right in the middle of him being here, you know, holding Sacramento in this grip of fear. And God, I wish there was a way to say it that that had the drama of that we all felt during that period. Um, I wish there was like some way we could portray it better. But it was just you had to be here, like you said, you had to be here to understand right. it. Um, but right in the middle, we had Richard Trenton Chase. Oh, right. the Sacramento vampire killer. Right. And that was in 77, December 77 to January 78. He only was one month active. He was only active for one month that we know of. Um, killed six people in the most horrific, horrific. of manners. Right. Most horrific. So Sacramento was just like, what the hell? Right. What the hell was happening? Um, do you remember that period there? I remember, I remember it now. I mean, I think the thing that, I mean, I was 12 when, when mm -hmm. D'Angelo starts his reign of terror. So I was, what, 15 or 16 when Richard Chenton Trace, he was a severely, severely mentally ill person. Right. He deranged, really, what he did to those. I mean, but as a kid growing up, I would say my focus was more about the East Area Rapists because that was somebody that was coming into homes. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was for, for, for me and my family, it was like, it wasn't a matter of if it was going to happen again. It was just when. When. That's right. Right. So when did you come into this case? I came, well, I came to Sacramento in, 19, in 1996. And when I had came, I came from Solano County DA's office where, you know, <laughs> apparently I didn't speak to you enough as an intern, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but uh, I was only like, you know, in my thirties and I came and I had done my first DNA case in Solano, it was a big deal. Same, similar thing, stranger rape, kidnapping of a teenage kid. And I, I started to become proficient at DNA cases and I started teaching classes and I started teaching cold cases. And so then in um, probably late 1999, um, after I had started teaching cold cases for DOJ, I went to then Jan Scully, the DA, and I said, hey, I think we should start a cold case unit. I think we should try to solve the East Area Rapist. And that was about like I said, late 1999. Because there was no cold case unit before that? No, cold case units for really didn't come into play until around then because of DNA, DNA wasn't really, DNA yeah. became more prevalent in the late 90s and it right. was actually an older technology and it required a lot more DNA. But mm -hmm. my point is I went to Jan, uh, our chief deputy at the time, and I said, I think we should start a cold case unit and I think we should try to solve these stare rapists. And it was really for no other reason than I felt strongly that the community needed to know. I wasn't even sure at the time if we could prosecute if we figured it out because of statute of limitations issues and things like that. So Jan said, yeah, absolutely. And we had a lot of other cases. We went around to um, all the local detectives, homicide detectives, retired detectives and said, okay, other than the East Area Rapist, give us the list of unsolves that you think could benefit from DNA evidence. And I could spend another week here talking about those cases because they're extraordinary. I mean, they're fascinating. Um, but we had, and I don't want to, you know, undersell this, but, you know, once we came up with a list, so we have the East Area Rapist as kind of, you know, one of the mm -hmm. main components. But once we've got the list, I mean, I'll, I'll, just a side story mm -hmm. is, you know, I went to SAC PD detectives and there was a retired guy, guy now he's retired, but longtime homicide. He, Worked with Cabrera and all that stuff. A guy named Dick Woods. I love Dick Woods. Longtime homicide guy. And I and he says, Eva Chu, you guys got to solve Eva Chu. And Eva Chu was a seven-month pregnant woman that worked right here 
uh, at a state building and she parked her car at a garage that's now the EPA building. So in, in April of 79, she leaves her employer to go to her seven-month checkup at three o'clock in the afternoon, walks out to the parking garage, and she's abducted, kidnapped in the middle of the day. And a day, her car is then found right over here on the WX, right here on the, right along the, where all the, mm-hmm. unfortunately all the mm-hmm. homeless are now, but, you know, basically over there, her car is found. And so it's a huge story. I remember seeing Mike Boyd, Channel 3 on the news. It was a huge, huge story because she's a stranger kidnapping mm-hmm. Can't find this woman. She's middle seven of the months day. Right, middle of the day. Two days later or so, her body's found over off of Longview Drive. She's been raped. She's oh. been strangled to death. Her baby is dead. Horrible case. Horrible, horrible case. And so that was the that was one of the first cases that we looked at. And we I remember going to SAC PD with the detective and go up to the property clerk and said, Can we take a look at this evidence? She brings it out. We look in the bag. Uh, there's her underwear that had been taken from her body. So we send it all to our crime lab and, you know, we figure out who it is, a guy in prison that we put in prison from Sacramento County. And I remember going up, these are all side stories, but, um, I went up with, uh, the DA investigator that was assigned to the case. The guy was in prison in Susanville. Um, and I went cause I wanted to see the interview and watch the interview and, uh, so I wasn't there as the DA. I was kind of there as just the assistant. And so we're sitting like you and I are. So the de- detective, me, and the suspect, the suspect's sitting three mm-hmm. feet from us. And he's in prison right now for attempted murder for somebody else. And so at one point, the de- detective says, starts just kind of asking background it's questions. It's Woods? It wasn't Woods. It was a guy no. from my office named Derek Greenwood. Very good investigator. And so... Derek, the investigator, you know, starts asking him, you know, where do you live? Where you, where were you living at the time? And blah, blah, blah. And then he said he has a picture of the victim. And he just puts the picture in front of this guy. His name is David uh, Joseph Aguayo. And he says, is there some reason that we would find your semen in the body of a dead pregnant lady? And I'm sitting here and I can see under the table, his leg starts to shake. And the guy just sits there and he goes, no, can't think of a reason, but I don't want to talk to you anymore. And I'm like, it's over, buddy. <laughs> so he was prosecuted. He's on death row now. Oh, but, all right. But the thing that to me of what, what gets me on these cases is just, I remember um, going with Detective Woods to talk to Eva's husband, who, you know, again, this is 25 years after the murder. And he, he just him. sobbed and sobbed and said it was his fault because he was supposed to take her to the doctor that day. And, and just, you know, this, this is the thing about cold cases. I mean, any, any crime, you know, it affects victims. Cold cases just lingers with these people. Um, but that was one of the first ones. We had several. We had another murder right here that Teresa Hightower was one of the very first, was raped and murdered at 13th and P. What? Um, at 13th and P? 13th and P is this apartment complex. Um, yeah. A guy named Ron Porter. Um, but we just started, what we started to do, I started to do, is I just went to make our list. We got our list of of cold cases. We started doing all our, we started having a lot of success. I mean, it's, you know, mm-hmm. if they're rape murders, mm-hmm. chances are likely you're going to get DNA. So, but the East Area Rapist, what we did is we went around, myself and some other folks from the office, and asked the police agencies, sheriff, the police department, can you, do you have any rape kits? Because that's the key to all of it, is do you have rape kits so you can do the DNA testing? And they didn't have them because the statute had passed, well, they believed the statute had passed. And so they had destroyed. So 
it was in that vein that I, I knew the guy had gone on to the Bay Area. And so I pick up the phone one day and I cold call the Contra Costa Crime Lab. And I said, hey, you know, I'm a DA in Sacramento. I'm trying to figure out if you have any rape kits on this case, the East Area Rapist. And I talked to this guy named Paul Holes. And this is March of 2000. And that's when I met Paul. And Paul's like, I can't believe you're calling me. It's the same thing I've been thinking about, too. We just really? happen to have three rape kits. And I'm like, oh, my God, we've got hope here. And so that's when, that's kind of my, how I got to know. Mm -hmm. And then for years. And that was in 2000. That was 2000. So, so that's 20, when you started working it. That's when I started my involvement. I mean, okay. I'm not an investigator, but I I, I know mm -hmm. this stuff really pretty well. So um, that's when, you know, the DNA was done. And that's when the light bulb went off. And the realization was that, oh my God, he's not just a serial rapist. He's a serial killer. And all these cases from Southern California started being connected to the same person. When did you, when when was that connection made that the, I don't know, was Visalia made at that time? Or was it just- the, uh, Visalia was always believed. Okay. Um, and so you would have- I mean, I read all those cases way back in the day, too, the Visalia cases. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd banter with other people. I don't know. Maybe it's the same guy. Maybe not. But then when it all came to fruition with the genealogy and really much more deep dive into some of the physical evidence, then it was like, oh, yeah, it's the same person. Okay. Um, but when did we create this one perpetrator? So April of 2001. Um the Contra Costa rapes um, were linked by DNA to the Ventura case, the Harrington's case, the Wittoon case, and the Janelle Cruz. And then subsequent to that, um, more DNA testing was done to link the other stuff. So it was a process. But it, at that time is when we knew he was a serial killer. So in 2001, we had this, we knew it was a super perpetrator. Uh, yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. Okay. And, um, oh, yeah, that's right. Because at that time, they would call him, I think, EAR. Slash ONS. Slash ONS. Yeah. 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 And so that's really like. There was a website. The ears on website. <laughs> and people would go on. Yeah. All that stuff. Um, how, who, how did he come up with the Golden State Killer? Like, where'd that come from? Well, I think that that name came up from Michelle McNamara, who, and I never met Michelle before she passed, and mm -hmm. I heard nothing but wonderful things. I've met her husband mm -hmm. um, since then, but um, I think she spent so much time on the case, um, really an obsession in a way, um, and that, I think she's the one that came up with it. I mean, it mm -hmm. does represent, I mm -hmm. mean, it is a good moniker because it represents, it was a statewide yeah, case. Yeah, it worked so, out. So, so in 2001, you guys are 2000 holes, you know, it's like, okay, we have a killer here. Right. They're the investigators are working it, working it. I mean, how many, how many suspects do you think they had? How many like real ones? Do oh, you think? real. Oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to. Was he ever one? D'Angelo? No. Oh no. Wow. Never. No, never. God. Never. I mean, he's never, he wouldn't, I mean, I'm just telling you without genealogy, he would never have been caught ever. Just like many of the other cases that have been solved now. He was he was that clean in what he did. Um, that he's wow, us, that's he's like I said, he's living right amongst us. That is amazing it's, in a little, <laughs> like a little 1970s home in Citrus Heights, man. Yeah, you would never understand. You'd never, but he knew because he had to be reading the paper, so he knew that he was now being connected to all this stuff, even if it wasn't him, right? He knew. Oh, I suspect he knew that. Um, that the case has been linked. I mean, mm -hmm. he was smart enough to do all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't think he had any clue that there was this new thing. Yeah. He didn't know about that. Right. But you know, he knew, okay. They know one guy did all this stuff. Um, so what was the breaking? How did this start to break in the way that we were able to, to get it to D'Angelo? Um, well, so 
In 2016, in June, to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the Rancho first rape, the Sheriff's Department partners with the FBI um, and local law enforcement and law enforcement from other uh, communities that are involved and says, listen, we're going to do a press conference. We're going to offer a $50,000 award. And what I always found interesting, so <clears throat> I wasn't the elected DA until 2015. So what my career kind of involvement in it was as a deputy DA that had knowledge of cold cases. So June of 2016, the Sheriff's Department does a press conference. And what I always found kind of fascinating was before that, the case never really had the level of attention that most of these cases have. You're right. They just didn't. It didn't. And it, and so I I got asked to come over to that press conference because I'd been involved in it and I'm now the DA and blah, blah, blah. And that press conference, at least to me, changed the dynamics of the attention on it in terms of after that, there were so many documentaries. Yeah, you're so right. So many. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that, mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that, that didn't change, that didn't solve the case, but I do think it, Created more um, awareness of the case. And a lot a of national focus. Yes, and a bloggers. lot of sleuthers. And so then um, later that year in 2016, um, I asked uh, all the elected DAs that had cases to come up to Sacramento so we could talk about let's just put more resources really? on this. Oh, yeah, I did. I mean, I would like I a round table. That, like a round table. And yeah. I wouldn't say that solved the case, but I was yeah. very adamant that this case needed to be solved. And we needed more resources, more bodies, more investigators, more DNA, whatever we could do. And we got more people. I put uh, the two people from my office who are were part of the genealogy team, Kirk Campbell, the homicide lieutenant, and Monica, who's the most brilliant analyst we, I, I've ever known. And I knew she would be very good. So we start putting people on it, more people on it. So then they're all working on it. You know, this is before the idea comes up on genealogy. So Paul Holes is very engaged. Mm -hmm. He's getting closer to retirement. He really wants this case solved. Uh, Kirk and Monica from my office, people from Southern California, um, DAs from Southern California are involved. And then in November of 2017, Paul Holes calls me up and says, hey, can I come up and talk to you? I, want, I have an idea. I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. So he comes up, sits down with me, Kirk from my office, Monica, and, and does this little presentation on this idea of genealogy. And at the risk of sounding kind of cocky, I don't want to sound cocky, but I, I understand DNA, forensic DNA. I, I've done it enough. I did it enough over my career that I understand it. This was like over my head the first time he said it. I'm like, I don't even get this stuff. Whatever the hell this tree building is. And, and he says, well, but my whole philosophy has always been if we have a forensic tool that we can use that within the bounds of the law, then we should do it. And so Paul's like, well, what do you think? And I said, so, hell yes, we should try. So it. when you're talking about genealogy, for those people that might not know who are listening, you're talking about like what we consider the 23andMe thing? Yeah, or, I mean, or, not that particular about? database. I right. mean, genealogy is essentially taking DNA, getting a certain type of DNA testing done on it that allows you then to try to find your relatives. And it's, you know, I, I haven't done it myself, but basically I, you know, if I swab my mouth, I go upload it to say family tree DNA, and then it allows you to then start figuring out who are your distant relatives. And you then build family trees, which 
is kind of what I call it, the marriage between law enforcement and science, because you got to build the trees to get to D'Angelo or whoever else it is. And so that's, it's no different than say an adopt, somebody that was adopted trying to figure out who their biological parents are. They're just trying to put all the pieces in the tree. And sometimes you've got to go way up to like the 1800s to figure out how you get back down the tree to figure out who it is. So you used essentially a commercial database, It's right? a commercial database um, yeah. that, um, that ultimately, I mean, it was through the work of Paul Holes, uh, Steve Kramer from the FBI, Melissa Parasoff from the FBI, Kirk and Monica from my office, and Dr. Uh, Barbara Ray Bentner. So they were this little core team of, I call them the little dream team of genealogy. And, you know, for, I don't know, 60-something days, this is what they did. And they, you know, I think they started around, so Paul comes in November 2017 and says, what do you think? I'm like, Absolutely got the DNA, had to send it out to a laboratory to get it des- tested. And then they started, I think, somewhere around February 2018 of building the trees. And to me, and then I think D'Angelo, I don't know, I don't, I, I don't want to say when he came into the tree, but he, he ultimately comes into the tree as a potential. Um, and that's probably sometime around late March or so, 2018. So, but someone had to go, oh, hey, what about this guy and put him into a tree, right? No, D'Angelo's not in the tree. It's, well, I shouldn't say it that way. The DNA, and I'll just say it in general, DNA gets uploaded to a, to a, a database and then based upon, so you have a sample that you've put in there. From the crime. From the crime. And then based upon what they call centimorgans, you're looking to see how many, how much DNA does that, crime scene sample, share with people in this tree. What is it? What is it? What are you looking for? So how much you share is going to tell you, are you looking for a first cousin, a second cousin, third mm-hmm. cousin? And that's ultimately the science tells you, okay, we, we, based upon how much we share, you're looking for this. And so they knew that they had to build this family tree out and start looking to see who else would fall. So some people put their DNA in there. Mm-hmm. And then you have to start figuring out, okay, who's D'Angelo or whoever else, who, in whatever case you're, who are they related to? Who, and, and that's where you have to go back in time. Sometimes, like I say, 1800s, you've got to look at things like old newspaper articles. You know, we talked about how we didn't have the internet back in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Well, in the twenties, the way people got their information out is they'd say, okay, well, aunt Mary and uncle Bob are getting, you know, married and here's all who came to the wedding reception. So you start being able to fill in, you know, cousin Jane, this. So you get that information because of things like articles mm-hmm. or grave sites or. Um, My God. I mean, somebody, I remember somebody telling me, I don't remember who it was, uh, a journalist. Well, I, it's called newspapers.com. So if you signed up for newspapers.com, you could probably figure out what you did in seventh grade. If somebody ever said, so I had a journalist say, I, I heard you did a, um, you were in a tennis tournament in seventh grade at San Ignatius. I go. Oh my God, that's way too much information out there on the internet. <laughs> yeah, but, right. But that's the thing. Like, that's how they yeah. figured out D'Angelo. So just, you know, background on it, you know, keep in mind, this is all happening. Uh, that this, this stuff with D'Angelo, at the same time, this civil unrest is happening in front of the DA's office in Sacramento. Oh my God. Right. And a lot of stress was happening. And so at one point I went into Monica's office. Monica is, Monica is brilliant. And she's trying to work on, they've never done this before. They never built family trees, but they're smart enough to do analytics. 
And so I kept going into her office every other day. I'm like, what's happening? Where are you at? How's it going? Can we just solve this darn thing? And and then she said at one point, well, there is a, there is this one person. He's kind of interesting, and but he's a little older. So I don't know. I don't really know. Come back to me in a couple of days. You remember the conversation? Oh, vivid. It's like, you know, when Elvis died. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, then she goes, come ask me a couple of days. I said, okay. So I go back in a day or two. And she's only, you know, 20 feet from my office. And I said, what's going on? Anything new? And she's like, and I asked her one point before this. I said, is this going to work? And she's like, it's the greatest hope we have. I said, okay. So then I went in a few days later and I said, what's happening? And she says, well, I found these police reports. He got arrested for a petty theft. And then I said, for what? And she tells me, and I, to me, I'm like, it's over. I mean, I knew because here he is. Most cops that had been working on this mm -hmm. felt that he was military or law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And then he's stealing a hammer and dog, dog repellent. And then you started to, and you know, and then I go, and then basically once he comes into the tree, then we go to the sheriff's department, you know, Kenny Clark, his sergeant, and uh, said, you know, you guys got to follow him around. You got to get his DNA. And it was another probably my chief mm -hmm. deputy, Steve Grippy, is like, oh, here we go again. Just another person they think might have done it. And it was mm -hmm. always, everybody had ideas and, and all legitimate, well-intentioned. And so that's when they follow him around. And um, in Paul Holes. The day before he's supposed to retire, right? Is that that's, true? I, that's what he says. That's I'm what sure he that's says. True. Yeah. I'm sure it's true. Yes. <laughs> the day before he's supposed to retire, he pulls up to, to yeah. D'Angelo's. I mean, I think we all kind of figured this is this is a moment in time we're not forgetting here. God, that's a, that's an amazing story. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, for me, what was what you know I'm not going to forget is so so Kenny Clark basically you know surveils him, gets the sample, abandoned sample um, from the Hobby Lobby, I think it was, and. Um, we get it to the crime lab and we get this call and I'm like, holy moly. And I'm like, well, we're doing another sample. I want to do a secondary sample. So then he surveils them again. We get another, they do a whole orchestrated thing and we get the second surreptitious sample and, um, we deliver to our crime lab. This is a Friday morning. It gets delivered to the crime lab. And so you know, we tell the crime lab, you need to finish this today. So I, that particular day, it's a, it's April 20th. It's a Friday. Um, I have to go to a dinner, a fundraising dinner for Crystal Ray high school, which is a great mm -hmm. school. And so I tell the chief deputy grip, Steve grippy. I said, I don't care what time it is. You better call me. <laughs> right. And he's like, okay, I'll call you. So I'm standing at Crystal Ray over at, um, mm -hmm. red Lion, I think it was over there by Arden fair. And I, and I get to, I see the call. I'm standing in the cocktail reception time. And I'm like, oh. So I go outside. And he's like, are you sitting down? <laughs> and I probably dropped a few F-bombs. And I said, you better not be messing with me. And and he goes, it matches. It's him. I'm like, oh, my God. I was like one of those things. I'm like, you better. And I, then I went, drilled him on exactly what it meant. Tell me this mm. and tell me that. And he's like, I don't know. They just, they're shaking at the crime lab. It's him. I'm they're like, shaking. Oh. Shaking. Oh, so that's awesome. That was kind of, yeah, it's like it a was moment done. that you're not going to forget. And then they showed up at his house. And what do you say? I have a roast in the oven or that's, something? Somebody says that. I don't, I'm not saying that. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's that. God, that's such a great story, man. I can it's imagine. Extraordinary. I mean, it's, you know, I think about it in this sense that, you know, for 40 years, so many people have dedicated mm -hmm. their lives to try right. to, I mean, you got these victims that have waited and then you've got investigators and then all of them sudden in a matter of just a few short days of 
well, months really, just, mm -hmm. you know, from February till April, you have really this new technology. It's yeah. like, oh my God. Oh it just happened God. to me, just happened to me in my eyes. It happened so fast. Yeah. Just boom, 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 boom. And he was gone. And you're like, you can't be. It's the goal. Yeah. <laughs> it's the I mean, I rings. had bets with family members and, you know, my, I have two kids and one of them was, I used, I, I mean, I knew, I kind of set my kids up, but I said, you know, what do you think? You think we're ever going to solve it? And my one son says, no way, never going to get solved. If you ever solve that case, I'll mow the lawn for a month. And my other kid says, yeah, I think you'll solve it. So it was, yeah, it was a good, good thing. And everyone over 45 is like, my God, you know, finally, all of us who, you know, lived through it. Right. Like amazing. Right. But then we had, you know, like the 30 year olds who were like, hmm, interesting. Okay, next. Um, but it was such, it was such a moving moment when that happened for me, because I never thought I would see the day that. Well, it's a chapter that needed to be finished. And yeah. for these families, I just, the devastation, um, it's, I don't, I hope to hell we never see it again. Never see anything like this again. So you, you did a great job in the prosecution and he pled yeah. and he's great team. I mean, yeah. this is a extraordinary historic mm -hmm. Uh, prosecution team from all the counties. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got Santa Barbara, you've got Tulare, you've got Ventura, Orange, Contra Costa. I mean, Sacramento. Um, it was the people that were assigned to be the prosecutors. Unbelievable talent, and the investigators, obviously. Yeah, advocates helped. I mean, so analysts. much to analysts. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah, yeah. I just couldn't believe in your. You know, I, I read, I watched a lot of your. You know, your statements. They were pretty amazing. And your, for them. Um, you brought something up because when people saw him wheeled into the wheelchair, wheeled into the court the first time, and he looked like an invalid, he looked like, you know, he had Lou Gehrig's disease, not, right. nothing against people who have it, but, you know, he was like catatonic. Yeah. Um, and then you did a brilliant thing in your clothes and you um, showed film uh, or video of him in his, in his cell. He's not a feeble old man as he portrayed himself to be on June 29th. And it was brilliant in the sense that, one, it showed that he was doing jumping jacks. I mean, he was, you know, he was, he was well, you know, able to move and he was, it was all an act. He wasn't an invalid. He was not an invalid. And, right. But the second thing you did, which really brought it home for me as a final chapter, was he had a habit of when he would take over these people's lives for that day yeah. or that night, he would put the TV on um, a channel at those days. People don't younger don't know what this is, but you would have right. channels and just had static on them, right? right. right. Like channel, here, it'd be like, you know, I don't know, channel whatever. Right. Um, 11, right? right? There was no channel 11 or 12. Right. Right. And so, and then he would put a towel over it. So he would have that ambient light. Right. Um, and you have video of him in his cell very meticulously, very carefully mm -hmm. taking paper and putting it over the right. light, uh, the windows in his cell. Very, very meticulous. Spoke volumes. To it see did. That. Yeah. It because he's not really volumes. any different. No. He's, he's doing not, the same thing. He's just the same person that he was 40 years ago. He's the same person. I'm sure he's doing it the same in prison right now. <laughs> it was just a real brilliant deal. So you've, you've looked him in the eyes. Um, I mean, I I went the night of he was arrested. I went down to the sheriff's department. I remember telling my chief deputy and the head of homicide, I said, I'm I'm not missing this moment here. And so we went down and we sat in another room to watch the monitors mm -hmm. of him get interviewed. Um, and then obviously at the plea and the sentencing. Mm -hmm. But 
But you didn't get the chance to sit three feet across from him and interview him. For some reason, I don't think he talked to me. (laughs) (laughs) Like the other guy. Um, So, um, but what's your, so what's your, what's your take? What's your final? And, and, you know, here's the other thing. Um, Oftentimes, you know, just even researching stories like this takes you to a dark place. Dark place. Takes you to a really dark place. Um, And, you know, I did work when I was down in the San Diego DA's office and I also interned up in Yuba County for a guy named Carl Abbott, Carl Adams, oh, yeah. Sutter County I for know Carl Adams. Very well. Um, later had an interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we don't talk Side about that. Topic. <laughs> um, so, and you know, I had to, you know, do research on the cases for the attorneys. Um, right. And just doing that would take me to a dark place, yeah. looking at the pictures and the yeah. stories. And, you know, right. there's some that I will never, ever forget. So doing this, Following this case as closely as you did, did it have an effect? How did it, what did it, did it do anything um, I to mean, you? I mean, I, I mean, I think my personal, you know, live growing up in the neighborhoods definitely gave me the passion for it. I mean, I have a passion for DNA anyway, because I think it's the greatest thing ever to find mm-hmm. the truth. Um, I, it's very different to read police reports and to, it, you know, yes, you look at crime scene pictures and yes, you can see the depravity. But I think for me, the kind of moment that I realized just the magnitude of, of the devastation this person wreaked was sitting through the week of sentencing because these people that mm-hmm. told, I, I mean, I would, I went back to my office and actually wrote down what some of these people said because it just, it destroyed generations. It really destroyed generations. And um, I, you know, I, it, I wouldn't say it's, um, yeah, it's a dark place to go to, but I guess for me, you know, why we do this job, why prosecutors do this job in law enforcement is to try to find some light in all that darkness. And I, you know, it's probably one of my proudest moments as a it DA. Be, yeah. It's a proudest, it's one of my proudest moments. I mean, there's many moments that I've been lucky to have, but, um, you know, to get Christmas cards from these people and just saying, uh, you know, 2020 wasn't so bad. All right. That's right. 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 That's yeah. what I tell people. No, the Golden State Killer. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I got a, uh, I sent out an email. There was a case I helped on a Thunder Valley Casino, a young woman that was. I remember that case. Christy Wilson. Mm-hmm. And, and her mom te- put a thing on Facebook saying, it's all about perspective. We f- I found my daughter's bones in 2020. It's been mm-hmm. 15 years. So some of it is perspective, but. You know, this is a chapter that, uh, a very horrific chapter that needed to be closed. And so I just, um, I hope it gives people hope. Genealogy is changing the way we solve crime. And I, you know, we're not going to solve all crime. Mm. But I definitely think we have an opportunity to solve much more. Well, it's, it, it has honestly been an, an honor to say Honor, that's you. a big yeah, word. Yeah, especially for me. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't yeah. give Whatever. compliments. Whatever, the intern from 1995. <laughs> the, intern, <laughs> the intern who had to sit at a different table. <laughs> big time in me. Thank you so much for so much Thank time. you for having me. I appreciate this it. This was really much. awesome. And um, thank you. Yeah, right. come back, talk about EDD or whatever else. <laughs> All right, bye-bye. Hey, if you like what you hear, like and subscribe. It really means a lot. And we would love to have you coming back every week. Thank you.